The following message is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. You can visit us online at orchardbible.org. 1 Corinthians 3, 1-9. This is the word of the Lord. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Please pray with me. Our Father, we're so grateful uh, to come together this morning to hear from your word, and, and we just look forward to hearing from you, Lord Jesus. We look forward to the Holy Spirit coming upon us with power, that we might be transformed, Lord, that we might be conformed and grow up into the likeness of Jesus. We pray for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. If you've had small children... Perhaps you're familiar with the experience of taking your child to a pediatrician periodically to see how they're developing physically compared to the national averages. Your child is 70% height, 40% weight, and so on. I always found these stats interesting. Well, for some parents, this information can be disconcerting. When they find their child is consistently trailing significantly in these stats, possibly indicating that something is wrong in their physical development because they're not where they should be. Something similar can happen with emotional development where the child's emotional maturity is stunted somehow, not able to deal with things as effectively as they should be at that age. They're stuck at an underdeveloped emotional level. Modern medicine calls this arrested development Either of these situations can be of great concern for parents when it becomes obvious something's wrong in their child's development because they're not where they should be. Well, the same thing can happen with spiritual development. Later in chapter 4, Paul addresses these Corinthians as his children in the faith. He is their spiritual father who brought them to Christ. And examining their spiritual maturity, he's concerned that they're not where they should be. In terms of spiritual development, they're stuck at a baby Christian level and something is wrong. So let's look together how Paul addresses this problem and what we can learn from this in our own lives. First in your outline, we need to understand Paul's categories as they relate to Christian maturity and spiritual development. 
Let's look together again at verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now, what does Paul mean when he says he cannot address them as spiritual, but people of the flesh? Well, spiritual means having the Holy Spirit. As we saw last week, Paul divides people into two categories, natural and spiritual. The unbeliever is the natural person who does not have the Holy Spirit. The believer is the spiritual person who does have the Holy Spirit. So when Paul says he cannot address them as spiritual, he's saying, I cannot address you as believers. Well, does that mean he thinks they're not Christians? No. He calls them brothers and infants in Christ. So they are in Christ, they're Christians, but they're not acting like it. So he cannot address them like they are. They have the spirit, but they're not living like it. As Schreiner says, they're in no man's land, which is a dangerous place to be. If they don't repent, they're in danger of the judgment, as, they will, as we'll see in chapter 10. They're acting like people of the flesh, fleshly. Or as the King James famously renders it, they are carnal. Some of you remember Campus Crusade for Christ had these pamphlets, the four spiritual laws and the spirit-filled life. And there were these diagrams for three different kinds of people. Three circles with a throne in each and a cross either on the inside or outside of the circle. Some of you remember these. And they, they presented three kinds of people in their judgment. The first was the natural person, the unbeliever. The cross was on the outside of the circle. The cross was not in their life. And their ego was still on the throne. The second circle, what they called a carnal Christian, they did have the cross in their life, inside their circle, but their ego was still on the throne of their life. And the third circle was the spiritual Christian who not only has the cross in their life, but also their ego has been dethroned by Jesus. Jesus was Lord of their life. So they had two categories of Christians, the carnal Christian and the spiritual Christian. Now, as Blomberg notes, it's a mixed package how helpful these, this distinction is, this distinction between carnal Christian and spiritual Christian. The pictures are helpful in a sense because it's not automatic, is it, that once someone becomes a Christian, Jesus is in charge of every area of their life visibly. That's true. But this distinction between carnal Christian and spiritual Christian can also be harmful and unbiblical. It's unbiblical if we imagine there are two types of Christians. Like we could split up the Christians in this room into two categories. The spiritual Christian where Jesus is Lord of their lives and the carnal Christian where Jesus is not Lord of their life. That's not a biblical distinction, and that's not what Paul is doing here. If you're a Christian, truly, by definition, Jesus is Lord of your life because that's a condition of the new covenant. If you're a genuine believer, you've pledged allegiance to fully and completely follow Jesus. Yet, in your new life in Christ, there's an ongoing transformation, isn't it? Into his likeness. So instead of two distinct categories, it's better to imagine a spectrum. 
When you initially become a Christian, you're truly saved, you have the Holy Spirit, Jesus is Lord of your life, and you begin down a path of transformation and increasing holiness. Bit by bit, as you're convicted of new sin, new areas of your life come into focus through the preaching of the Word, through your own study of the Bible, and through discipleship and one-anothering, through the Spirit's work in your life. And we're, we're constantly repenting, turning over new areas of our lives to Jesus as you're transformed by the Holy Spirit. If you're not transforming and growing in, in obedience to Christ, there's cause for concern. That's Paul's concern here. They should have been further along by now. By saying he cannot address them as spiritual, he's intentionally wording things in a contradictory way. You guys are spiritual, but you're not. As Gordon Fee says, Paul's language here is intentionally ironic. So, Paul is not saying, hey, you have the spirit, but you're carnal. And that's one type of Christian. No. He's saying, you have the spirit, but you wouldn't know it by the way you're acting. And that's a problem. Your spiritual maturity has stopped in the infancy stage. So as you see in number two in your outline, you might call this condition spiritual arrested development or sad, if you will. And it was sad indeed on many levels. Let's read together starting at the end of verse one. He addresses them again as infants in Christ. I fed you, verse two, with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So let's consider the symptoms of this sad condition we see here. The first, letter A, an underdeveloped palate for only baby food teaching. When Paul founded this church, he gave them milk, simple gospel instruction, which was totally appropriate. No one thinks it's strange when a baby drinks milk and eats baby food. That's normal. But not six years later. Paul says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, because you were not ready for it. That's normal for baby Christians. He spent 18 months with them when they first became Christians and taught them basic stuff, baby food. He didn't give them more than they could handle. But now, six years later, you're still not able to eat anything solid. Something's wrong. He expected them to have grown and their palate to have developed for more mature teaching. Very similar, if you're familiar with Hebrews chapter 5, where the writer says, you should be teachers by now, but you need someone to teach you the basic principles again. You need milk, not solid food. Okay, similar. Now, this is really important. Don't misunderstand Paul here. There's a sense in which you never get away from the basics. Paul just got done explaining he knew nothing but Christ crucified. Okay, the wisdom of the cross is the foundation for everything. It's just that they should have moved beyond the basics about the cross into deeper implications and teachings of the cross. Let me illustrate. 
The famous NFL coach Vince Lombardi was meeting with his players for the first day of training camp in 1961 after a heartbreaking loss which ended their previous season. And he knew that his players were thinking about that loss for many months and maybe overthinking what they needed to do differently this year, this season. So at the very first meeting of training camp, he held up a football and said, gentlemen, this is a football. And he proceeded to talk about the fundamentals of the game. He knew it was important to recalibrate everyone to the fundamentals. It's the same with the Christian life. We always want to recalibrate to the fundamentals, the gospel of the cross. That's why we take the Lord's Supper every week as he commanded, to focus on the fundamentals. But Coach Lombardi did not stop there. While everything was based on a solid understanding of the fundamentals, he would have been shocked to find out that was all his players knew. They had been playing football for many years. They're professionals. If they only knew the fundamentals and nothing more, something would be wrong. So we always return to the fundamentals to get our bearing, as Coach Lombardi did, as we move on to advanced instruction. It's the same in the Christian life. There's a spectrum of depth in the gospel teaching about the cross of Christ, all the way from milk, which goes down easy, no chewing required, to real meat that takes a long time to chew and digest. And the Corinthians were still at that basic level, eating baby food. I'll give you an example in a minute. But one other important note here. This is not just intellectual knowledge he's talking about. He says later, knowledge puffs up. So it's not just that they needed to learn more data. They needed to appropriate and apply the truths they've neglected. If you're not being transformed by biblical knowledge in the way you're thinking and living your life, then you're still stuck. You may be acquiring more data, but that resistance to transformation will limit your palate to consume more advanced teaching. So the problem was not so much the kind of truth they had, but the degree of depth that concerned Paul. Okay, Ray Stedman gives a great example. Consider this statement. Jesus died for your sins. Okay, that's a simple truth that a child can understand. And you never outgrow the wonder of that basic fundamental truth. It's beautiful, isn't it? But compare that with this statement. I have died with Christ. I am raised with Christ. So I am dead to sin. Well, that's meat. Okay, it's still rooted in the same truth of the cross. But it's still, it's much deeper and demands more chewing and contemplating to digest it. And if truly digested, will have a transformational impact on the way you think and live your life. Or the commands to love one another as Christ has loved us and gave himself up on the cross, forgiving one another. These also are rooted in the same truth of the cross, do you see? But they're harder truths to digest, aren't they? More meat. But when digested, result in maturity and growth. The Corinthians weren't doing that. They were stuck on the baby food. C.K. Barrett says this, A mere lapse of time does not bring Christian maturity. That's true of maturity in general, isn't it? Age often has little to do with maturity. 
If someone is 30 years old living in their parents' basement playing video games all day, something's wrong. They shouldn't be at that level of maturity. You can't teach him deeper wisdom of how to honor God in the workplace because he's not even wrestled with that question. He doesn't even understand what a workplace is. He has no palate for that advanced teaching. He hasn't even applied the more basic baby food teaching about responsibility and getting a job. Until he applies that, he's not ready for more advanced instruction. If someone is still operating at a 10-year-old maturity level as it relates to work and responsibility, it's pointless to try and teach him about the dynamics and wisdom of honoring God in the workplace, dealing with conflict and authority, bosses and coworkers. He doesn't even have the categories for that. He has an underdeveloped palate for that deeper instruction. He's still on baby food and should have moved beyond that. Something is wrong. So it is with these Corinthians as it relates to the wisdom of the cross. They're still at the basic baby food level and haven't even truly digested that and applied that to their lives. That's what Paul is saying here. A second symptom of this sad condition, letter B, being insecure and picking fights like an unbeliever. It's not only that they were immature in their ability to receive advanced teaching. They were also immature in their behavior. So they're not just eating like babies. They're acting like babies. Now, when you're holding a a cute little baby, it can almost be cute when they pull at your nose or pull in your ear or something like that. It's not cute when they're six. A six-year-old pulling at my ear is not cute. It's embarrassing. The same, is with, the same is true with baby Christians, isn't it? I honestly, I almost find it cute and humorous in the same way when their immaturity shines through. If someone just gets saved and they use foul language or, or they ask the most basic question about the Bible, I love it. They're, they're baby Christians. They're, they're just learning what it means to follow Jesus. Very few things change instantly. We're on a spectrum, remember? But six years into the faith, if they're still using the same foul language, it's not cute anymore, is it? It's embarrassing. Something is wrong. In verse 3, Paul says there's jealousy and strife among them. I think of an elementary school playground. Some of you remember the games played on the playground. Kids can be so mean, can't they? excluding kids intentionally, jealousy, have your own little clique or group putting others down. The slightest offense just triggers a fight. I cringe thinking about the things I said on the playground to others and things others said to me. So rude and childish. In a sense, that's what's happening in Corinth. They're bickering between their little cliques like kids on a playground. And this strife and jealousy had to do with the one they followed, the the one who had most influenced them spiritually. Paul doesn't do much for me. I'm more into Apollos. He's so eloquent and articulate. Well, you know what? Take your obsession with eloquence and words elsewhere. I remember something else from my elementary school Days, my friends and I each had our favorite baseball players. 
And we would argue about who was better, comparing stats. And I remember almost taking it personally when someone said something negative about my favorite player. I mean, what a childish thing to be insecure about and picking fights about. Jealousy and strife. That's what's happening in Corinth over their favorite ministers. Which brings us to a third symptom of this sad condition. Letter C. A wrong and naive view of your spiritual influencers. The Corinthians were divided into factions based on this. Some followed Paul, perhaps because he was the apostles of the Gentiles. Some followed Apollos, perhaps again because of his eloquence and ability to articulate. He was known for that. And they were taking their affinities to extremes of unhealthy allegiance. Chuck Swindoll says this. One thing we find in children is personality worship. Simply put, being a groupie. Focusing on a particular leader can denigrate into pride, exclusivism, the kind of enthrallment that amounts to idolatry, end quote. That's what's happening with these Corinthians. They measured their spiritual wisdom by who they sided with, who their allegiance was to. And when they did that, they're not operating by the Holy Spirit, Paul says. They're, instead, they're just like unbelievers. This can be an issue today as well, can it? I follow MacArthur. I follow Keller. I follow Piper. Now, there's nothing wrong with learning from gifted men and women. Praise the Lord for them. But sometimes our appreciation can cross over into an allegiance that's both unhealthy and amounts to idolatry. I think there's a particular temptation. This is just my perception and myself and, and, and some, some degree in others. I would call this temptation intellectual laziness. We don't want to expend the effort to think for ourselves. In Acts chapter 17, the Bereans were praised and set forth as examples of noble people. Not because they just agreed with everything Paul said but because they searched the scriptures to find out if what Paul was saying was true. Now, that can be hard work. Study and think for yourself. It's much easier to find someone you agree with and just take their position on everything. That's much easier than thinking for yourself. I'm sure we've all seen this in ourselves to some degree, maybe in others. You can be in a Bible study, for instance, and someone uses the same name drop for every comment they have, citing the same person every time. Now, of course, let me be clear. Nothing wrong with searching the commentaries to find out what various respectable scholars and pastors say about biblical issues, current events in our culture. That's wisdom. And we need more of that, not less. What I'm talking about is if you always go to one source, listen to one person, from whom you just take their word on any matter without thinking critically. That's intellectual laziness that can lead to unhealthy allegiance. One influencer at the exclusion of everyone else. Almost as if that one influencer is infallible, and that's dangerous. It will cause division because you're bound to be offended when someone disagrees with your influencer. Many of you remember the late Ed Risto Sr., I only knew him the last few years of his life, a dear Christian man. He was very well informed about the history of the Plymouth Brethren movement. 
A leading figure in this movement was a man by the name of John Nelson Darby, J.N. Darby. Well, Mr. Risto relayed to me a story that is told about a gathering of some Plymouth brethren in the mid-1800s. A few men were on stage debating some biblical topics. A crowd had gathered around them. And one of the men on the stage was arguing uh, his point, and he pulled the best name drop possible in such a gathering. He said, well, J.N. Darby wrote such and such. And someone in the crowd yelled out, J.N. Darby was wrong. There was a stunned silence. And the man on the stage looked into the crowd and said, excuse me, but who are you to criticize J.N. Darby? And the man in the crowd said, I am J.N. Darby, and I was wrong when I wrote that. (laughs) We never want to elevate our influencers to such a degree that when someone disagrees with them, it sets you off and can cause division. That's wrong, and it's naive. So what's the right view of influencers? How do we escape this sad condition? This brings us to number three, don't be a baby. Read with me, please, in your own Bible, starting at verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you have believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So Paul uses an agricultural, a farming metaphor to bring everything back to the Lord and illustrate a proper view of our influencers. Paul planted or started the church in Corinth. Apollos watered, a significant ministry after Paul left there. They're both farmhands. They're both members of the farm crew. This is God's work. It's his land, it's his farm, and he's the grower. Everything good and fruitful comes from him. The Holy Spirit is ultimately responsible for the growth and fruit they've experienced. What is Paul? What is Apollos? They're servants, part of the farm crew. If it wasn't for them, God would use someone else. They complement each other. But it's not like one is more important than the other. They're one in purpose, so don't pit them against each other. Thinking back to the uh, arguments I would have with my grade school friends about our favorite baseball players, what was particularly ridiculous in our case is that most of these players played for the same team. (laughs) And we all wanted the same team to win. How childish to pledge allegiance to one player and divide over it. Paul makes it clear to the Corinthians, he and Apollos are on the same team. They have the same goal. They belong to God. Verse 9 is possessive. God's fellow workers. They are fellow workers, unified in purpose, and they belong to God. They work toward the same harvest, but neither of them had anything to do with seeds growing and bearing fruit. That's all God. The differences between Paul and Apollos have to do with God's calling, not which one of them was greater. So there's a unity and diversity on the farm crew. They're unified in in purpose, one harvest, but they have different tasks. So it is God that should be central, not members of the farm crew, not their favorite human ministers. Allow me to switch the metaphor for a second. 
Remember John, the Gospel of John chapter 15, the vine and the branches. The branch is only able to bear fruit with the nutrients that come from the vine. Disconnected from the vine, the branch is dead. So don't pledge allegiance to your favorite branch and then divide over it. Recognize that all the branches are bearing fruit due to the vine. Without the vine, they're dead sticks on the ground. Now, the branches are not irrelevant. Okay, let's switch back to Paul's metaphor, farming metaphor here. Paul and Apollos are not irrelevant. Okay, one planted, one watered. It's appropriate to recognize them and thank them for the role they played. We should thank and encourage people for the work they do. But thank God for the fruit. God's the one responsible for making things grow. Listen to Brian Rosner. He said, side by side and from a human perspective, Apollos and Paul are not nothing. But when standing next to God, the owner of the field and life force of the harvest, they may as well be nothing. So it's not for us to rank the farm crew. Verse 8, each will receive his wages according to his labor. God will evaluate the quality of the work and reward accordingly. That's the theme of next week's passage. Paul and Apollos were gifted people. The people who have influenced us are gifted people, and we should thank God for them. But when the focus starts to be on the one delivering the fruit instead of the grower, when we start elevating one person at the expense of others and create conflict, we need to grow up. Okay, with our remaining time, I want to consider some further application of these truths we've been thinking about. And I'm going to use Paul's metaphor of the field or a farm. He says at the end of verse 9, you are God's field, God's building. Okay, we're going to, God's building is what we're going to look at next week. He uses that metaphor to make a different point. But today, I want you to imagine this field, God's farm. And in the context of this farm, I have two applications. You could say one is minor and one is major. The major will get to last, and that is that God is the grower. He's the one ultimately responsible for every gift in the Christian life for us to enjoy. But I'm going to start with the minor application, a letter A. Palettes and development needs differ. One of the ways I think Christians can unnecessarily divide is over, ironically, over fruit they've enjoyed. Even though God is the ultimate grower of that fruit, less mature believers tend to be more evangelistic about the fruit instead of the grower. Maybe it's a book we read. Maybe it's a program we went through. Maybe it's a conference we attended. Maybe it's a particular speaker that has influenced us. The fruit tastes so good to us and nourished us, and we've been so personally blessed by it, and we want to tell others about it. Now, nothing wrong with that. Praise God for that fruit, for what it's done for you. But sometimes we can get so fixated on what that fruit did for us, like everyone needs to have my kind of reaction and enjoyment to this book, this speaker, this program, this fruit. And if they don't, we can be offended, which is a a seat of conflict. So we need to remember We all have different experiences that the Lord has brought us through, praise God, haven't we? And and we're at different places in our journey and development. Let's remember it's God behind that fruit 
God behind that author, behind that speaker, behind that program, who is responsible for all that fruit. And praise God for it. It's ultimately from him. He's provided other fruit for others. More catered to their palates, their maturity. And when your focus is less on the fruit and more on the God behind all the fruit, you're less likely to be offended if someone isn't as wowed by the fruit you've enjoyed or has been impacted by different fruit than you. And you're more likely to praise God for all that fruit, which is what we should do. Furthermore, we should seek to develop and mature our own palates. Okay, if I say to my 12-year-old, son, you have to try this Penang curry extra spicy. It's one of the best things I've ever had. <laughs> he would spit it out and put his mouth to the faucet. Okay, thinking I'm crazy for enjoying that. He has no appreciation for it whatsoever. But one day, he might. Now, he does have a palate for mac and cheese. Okay? And I do too. Just not as much as I used to. I used to really love it. You should expect your palate to develop with maturity. I'm sure we can all think of books, if you've been in the Lord for a while, I'm sure you can all think of books or speakers or programs that significantly impacted us years ago. And we're still thankful for them, like mac and cheese. But when less mature, we are almost obsessed with them. Like, everyone's got to go through this program. But we've matured. Our palate has been developed by the Spirit through experiences in life, walking with the Lord, transformation. We should expect our palates to change, and we should pursue that change, pursue that maturity. So, brothers and sisters, push yourself to read broadly, listen broadly, study deeply, And most importantly, challenge yourself not just to learn more data, but apply the hard things you hear from God's word. Chew, digest, and apply it to your thinking and living. That's Christian growth. The Christian life is a life of constant repentance as the Lord brings new areas, new things into our mind that we need to hand over to him. As the Lord matures you and develops your palate for more nuanced, advanced teaching. Okay, that's one minor application. The major application here, growing up on God's farm, is closely tied to the first one. And that is that letter B, God is the grower of the fruit. Let's not make too much or too little of the farm crew. Let's be thankful for them but not idolize them or divide over them. Let me try and tie this point together with a modern-day parable. I grew up with uh, two younger brothers in in rural Minnesota, and until my parents moved here a number of years ago, we would all converge with our kids on the farm for a week during the summer. One, One of the highlights of that week, besides me winning in badminton, one of the highlights of that week was the sweet corn. So it's so hot and humid during the the growing season, it's just perfect condition for these three weeks of incredible sweet corn. And our neighbor was the crop farmer. We just had a hobby farm, but our neighbor was the crop farmer of soybeans and field corn. And about a mile or two away from us, he would section off a portion of the cornfield for sweet corn. So usually, one of us would 
drive the four-wheeler with a big basket to pick up some corn, bring it back. Someone else would take the husks off. Someone else would boil the water. Someone else would set the table and so on. Now, all these grandkids were scrambling around with their cousins as we got ready to sit down and eat. Now, imagine, here's the fictional part. Imagine this conversation among these cousins. This corn is so good. I want to sit by Uncle Luke because he drove the four-wheeler and got all this corn. Another says, well, I'm going to sit by Aunt Laura because she took all the husks off the corn. That's why it tastes so good. I mean, imagine eating with the husks on. Another one says, I want to sit by Grandma because she boiled the water. It's cooked perfectly. That's why it's so tasty. In fact, you talk about boiling water. You don't even know how to turn on a stove. She's a master. You're not even giving her credit for this. In fact, you know what? I don't even want to sit at the same table as you. Anyone who's not smart enough to understand that the water boiler is obviously more important than someone who drove a four-wheeler, I don't even want to sit at the same table as you. Well, I hope you do sit at a different table. Because without Uncle Luke driving the four-wheeler to get the corn, there's no corn at this table. And here's another thing. It's not just that he drove the four-wheeler, okay? It's how he drove it. He's the most gifted driver. And if you can't appreciate that, you don't deserve to be at our table. Well, go ahead. Sit at your ignorant table. I want to be with people who have knowledge, people who understand why this corn is good. Let me just pause there. If you think this whole conversation among these cousins is painfully ridiculous, then you're beginning to understand this passage. These attitudes and divisions are ridiculous to Paul. God's the grower. Okay, we all had a part to play in the meal, not to mention our neighbor, of course, who planted the corn. We each had complementary roles in God's fruit, which was a sweet corn dinner we could all enjoy. But make no mistake, the sweet corn is from God. In terms of actually making the corn grow into something we can enjoy, who is Uncle Luke? Who is Grandma? To elevate one role above another and then divide over it is beyond childish. Now, on the other hand, we all had a role. Let's not diminish anyone. Okay, Paul planted, Apollos watered. Thanks, guys, for serving. Appreciation for labor is appropriate. Hey, thanks for boiling the water. Thanks for taking all those husks off. Thank you for driving the four-wheeler. You are a gifted driver. Being verbally appreciative of service is what we should do. Just remember that God's the grower. So we thank God for the fruits, and it's unifying to do so. It's a unifying thing to thank the, the grower for what we enjoy in the Christian life in the church. Now, the focus in our passage, in terms of the farm crew, is on these founders and ministers that established this church in Corinth. Admittedly, that's the focus here. But later, in chapter 12, Paul emphasizes that all of God's people have gifts. Okay, spiritual gifts. We have the Holy Spirit. We have gifts. We all have roles to play on the farm crew, if you will. And a church is like a farm table where we enjoy God's fruit together. Now, Many people in our day 
view church not like a farm table. They view church like a restaurant. And that's an experience much different than a, than a farm table, isn't it? When you go to a restaurant, you're purely a consumer. You go in with expectations that other people are going to serve you and give you a good meal. Nearly all the people in the restaurant are being served by a few. All the work is being done by a few, and those few are getting paid. That's unfortunately how many view the church today. We show up and get served by a few doing all the work. But in the New Testament, my friends, the church is like this farm table. Everyone's contributing. No one role or person is idolized as best or more important. And no one role or person is diminished as least important or unnecessary. And no one but God the Holy Spirit is responsible for the growth and the benefits. So if you're not involved at Orchard, we want you to be involved. We, we want you to join the farm crew. We want you to talk to Brian Payne, our administrator. So we can all come together and do our part and enjoy the fruit that the Lord has provided. Let me close by saying to those of you here who are listening to this, maybe this is all new to you. Uh, maybe uh, you've been in and out of churches in your life, but you've never really understood what we're talking about here. We're glad you're here. You're welcome to be here. Here's the deal. Without the Holy Spirit indwelling you, you may appreciate some of the fruit from afar. Some of it may look attractive. But you will not have the palate for it until you're born again. Until you first consume Jesus, none of the other fruit will benefit you. Until you give your life to Jesus and follow him, none of it will taste as delicious as it does to us. So I implore you, Embrace the wisdom of the cross, which is this. The God of the universe humbled himself to die on a cross for sinners and then rise from the dead that he might be their savior, their king, their Lord. Embrace this Jesus that you might have life with him forever. Consume all that he is and all that he's done. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Please stand with me as we close. Our Father, we're so grateful for the fruit you've given us as believers. We're grateful for this church. We're grateful for Orchard Bible Church that ministers to each of us. Grateful for the roles that people play. But ultimately, we thank you because you're the grower. You're the reason we exist. You're the reason this church functions. You're the reason we're saved. And I just pray, Lord, for those here who, who do not have that relationship with you, that they might humble themselves and turn fully to you, embracing you as their Lord and Savior, that they might partake of the Holy Spirit and see that you are good. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. You're dismissed.